Hi everyone, I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth, and this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Kelly Turner, PhD and New York Times bestselling author of Radical Remission and Radical Hope. Her books summarize her research over the past 15 years, interviewing over 1,500 cases of radical remission survivors and the commonalities they had in healing from cancer or other serious illnesses in a statistically unlikely way without conventional medicine or after conventional medicine had failed. In this episode, we dive into Kelly's research and the 10 key healing factors that the survivors all practiced. Kelly shares stories of radical remission survivors that were sent home to hospice and then through practices like releasing suppressed emotions, radically changing diet, having more positive emotions, spontaneously healed. There are so many takeaways, not only for those dealing with cancer, but lifestyle tips that we should all be making to live a happier, healthier life. Keep listening to learn more and hear some amazing healing stories. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. I am so grateful for our time to chat today. And as we were just kind of starting kicking off, I think I first found out about your work at Mind Body Green Revitalized many years ago and have just been such a huge fan of what you're doing. So I'm excited for the conversation today. Definitely. Thanks for having me. And I've been a huge fan of your granola ever since Arizona. (laughs) So let's dive in and start really at the beginning of your personal wellness journey and how you initially got into the field that you are and what interested you in studying and doing the research that you're doing today. Definitely. Well, like most people, I've lost loved ones to cancer. The first two people who died in my life died of cancer. And they were both sort of sudden, out of the blue, unexpected things. So my uncle was diagnosed and he died a few years later. And I was young. I was like eight or nine years old. And so I just had this like foreboding feeling that, you know, your dad could just die all of a sudden. And then fast forward to when I was 14 and my classmate, my dear friend, got diagnosed with stomach cancer. And I grew up in a small town. So this was a huge deal that one of, you know, the 40 eighth graders was diagnosed with stomach cancer. So our whole town sort of watched him go through surgery and chemo and radiation and more chemo and more radiation. And he unfortunately lost his battle to cancer when we were 16. So really those two sort of first deaths in my life made me want to help cancer patients give back in some way. So after my undergraduate years at Harvard, I ended up going to get my master's in counseling at UC Berkeley. And the plan was just to help cancer patients, you know, just help them through that experience. And that I was reading a lot about cancer patients at that time. It was, you know, my master's degree. So I had a lot of reading, but I was reading a book that wasn't assigned. I was reading a book to cheer me up called um, Spontaneous Healing by Andrew Weil, which is a wonderful classic if you've never read it. Absolutely. And in there was this case of a stage four cancer patient who had stage four kidney cancer. His name is Shin Teriyama. You can read about him in my first book, Radical Remission. But there was just a a brief couple of paragraphs saying that this man was diagnosed with um, kidney cancer that eventually progressed to stage four. He tried all that he had a kidney removed. So he had surgery, he had all the chemo, all the radiation that his Japanese doctors recommended, 
But unfortunately, it didn't work, and he was sent home on hospice care. And somehow, by making lifestyle changes, he turned his health around and walked back into his doctor's office three years later, completely healed with no evidence of cancer on his scans. And I just, you know, I was having the people I was counseling were dying left and right. And it was it was a hard job. And to know that this man had turned around stage four cancer after being sent home on hospice, I was just sort of like a dog with a bone. I couldn't let it go. And I, I actually dove into the research that night after reading this, and I quickly found in the medical journals that there were over 1,000 of these cases of so-called spontaneous remission from cancer. And that was when it just all sort of like, like that big light bulb moment or like, you know, when your life pauses, right? And you're just like, whoa, it's here. something, yeah, this is, this is big. And I decided to continue on at Berkeley and get my PhD, specifically trying to find these cancer patients who had turned things around in somewhat miraculous ways and ask them, why do you think you healed? And no one had done that. No one had asked these people why they think they healed. People had asked their doctors, how do you explain this? And the doctors all said, we have no idea. It must be spontaneous. Hence the term that that most people know in the medical world, spontaneous remission. Well, after 15 years of researching this directly with the people who healed, I can say with absolute confidence that there is nothing spontaneous about these healings. They work very hard and they transform every facet of their life. Wow, that's it's incredible. It like gives me goosebumps hearing that initial interaction for you. So without knowing very much at all on the medical side, so when you're looking at medical journals and you see these cases, do they give any information or is it just like, you know, here was a sentence and they had a year to live and then like they walked in and everything was fine? That's that's pretty much it. There's a lot of biomedical information. So they'll give a lot of biomedical information about their scans and the size of their tumor and their blood work before they were sent home on hospice care. And then they'll give the after picture. So they'll tell them, they'll tell you in the report what their scan showed after they came back and what their blood work showed. So you get all this like biometrics. And then, you know, if you dig a little deeper into the the discussion part of the article, maybe a, a doctor will throw out a hypothesis that says immune activation, but cause unknown, right? Very few of these, these articles, these case reports had a hypothesis attached to them. And that's when I realized wow, this is happening, right? There's over a thousand of these cases in peer-reviewed journals, but the doctors don't know why it's happening. So, you know, in the scientific method, you need a hypothesis before you can run a a clinical trial. You need to test a hypothesis. But here, here we were with a thousand cases, but no hypothesis, right? No idea as to why these people were healing. And in the scientific world, when you are lacking a hypothesis for a phenomenon that's happening in front of your eyes, but you can't explain it, instead of using quantitative research methods, um, it's more appropriate to use qualitative research methods. So that's like in-depth interviews, more closer to anthropology, right? So imagine the anthropologist going to an indigenous, an indigenous tribe in the you know Amazon jungle and just starting to observe and learn their language and then just ask them questions about how they're operating. And that's sort of the hat that I had to wear with this research. I had to be an anthropologist and say, you're a medical mystery, you tell me. What, tell me everything. What, tell me everything. Tell me what you did. Tell me how you were feeling. And even things that you think maybe didn't have anything to do with it. Just tell me everything that changed. 
And so I had very long interviews, like three, four hour interviews sometimes. So yeah, let's dive into a little bit of, of what that looked like. So you go in and you have these interviews and at what point do you start connecting? Is it like pretty immediate that, you're, that you you know speak to three people and they all have the same commonalities or what did that really look like? And what what was like that aha moment for you? I would say probably after my fourth or fifth interview is certainly in, in the, you know, in the second interview, I'm like, oh, that person also did diet and okay, that person also had a bunch of emotional shifts and but they took different supplements and they they did different diet changes. So I was still a little confused by the second interview, but by the fourth or fifth interview, it was coming together more in broad strokes, right? What I eventually found after, I did a year of research for my dissertation. So I went around the world um, from a grant by the American Cancer Society, which I'm very grateful That's for. Amazing. Yeah, and I was lucky enough to be able to go to 10 countries and interview 20 radical remission survivors and 50 of their healers and just ask them, why do you think you healed? So the initial research was just with 20 of them. Before my first book came out, I expanded that to a thousand because I was able to use all the case reports in the journals. But yeah, I'd say after the fourth or fifth interview, I'm like, okay, they're all changing their diet, but in slightly different ways. And they're all taking supplements, but it's individualized to them. And they're all making these big emotional shifts and spiritual shifts. But again, it's individualized to their particular life situation, right? So one of the common healing factors on the emotional side is releasing suppressed emotions. Well, for some people, that might mean releasing, you know, the stress of a 20-year corporate job. For someone else, it might mean releasing the trauma of being raped when they were 16. So everyone sort of had different emotional and spiritual changes to make, but they were all making them. That's incredible. So that's at a high level talk through what those 10 factors were and then kind of dive into some of them. Yeah, absolutely. So the 10 common threads or common healing factors that I found among all radical remission survivors. And I always like to say they, people do more than 10 things, but when I look at what everyone's doing, right? So say there's like a hundred things people are doing all together. Not everybody's doing all 100. But of the people I interviewed, they were all doing these 10. So that's that's why the 10 factors are sort of the findings of my qualitative research. So in no particular order, because we don't know which of these is more important than the others, if any, the first three are what I call foundational. So they sort of set the foundation for healing. One is finding strong reasons for living. Another one is empowering yourself. So finding a place of empowerment to go through your healing process. And the third is embracing social support. So once you have those three things, it's a lot easier to make a big diet change, right? When you've got your friends and family and you're feeling empowered and you're focused on why you wanna live. So that's why I call those three the foundational ones. Then three additional healing factors of the 10 are physical ones. One is radically changing your diet. Another one is taking herbs and supplements that are personal for you. And the third is doing daily movement or exercise of some sort. And then we get to the final category, which is emotional, mental. And there are four of those. And I, I once had an oncologist tell me, it's good that you as a counselor did this research, Kelly, because I would have lumped all those into just stress reduction. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I guess in, in some ways, all of these help reduce stress. But coming from my master's in counseling, I was able to sort of see a little bit more nuance with these emotional changes. And so the four emotional mental factors are releasing suppressed emotions. We can talk more about that later increasing positive emotions, following your intuition, which was the one that definitely surprised me the most, 
and then deepening your spiritual connection practice, whatever that may mean for you. So those were the 10. I know it's a lot, but we can dive in wherever you'd like to. Perfect. Well, let's first start with what surprised you the most and why did that surprise you the most? Definitely intuition. It came up in the first interview and I'm like, okay, so, you know, they heard a strong voice or they heard a a powerful voice telling them, you know, to call this friend and, and ask their advice or something. And then it came up in the second interview and the third and the fourth. And I actually was worried because I'm like, how am I going to tell my UC Berkeley professors <laughs> that one of the common threads among radical mission survivors is hearing voices, right? Like, is, are these people crazy? And I actually dove into the scientific research behind intuition. And there's a lot of incredible science behind it. So once I understood the science behind it, it felt a little less worrisome to tell my professors about it because intuition is just your brain trying to get you to survive, right? So we have the front of our brain, the frontal cortex, that's where we plan and make to-do lists and do math and that sort of thing. And then the very back of our brain, which is the oldest part of our brain, some people call it the reptilian brain because reptiles have it there as well. It's back in your cerebellum. That's where survival instincts live and that's where they take over. So once I understood that, because people would say things like, it didn't even make sense. I just picked up the phone and called my friend from college because I just had this strong feeling to call her. And it turns out that friend knew a, a naturopathic doctor who, you know, specialized in breast cancer or something. So who knows exactly how it all operates, but we do have this part of our brain that takes over and just tells you what to do. And it can either come as feelings from the gut, which has a hundred million neurons in it, or it can come, you know, from this back part of your brain. But that part of our wiring takes over when our lives feel threatened. And that's what a cancer diagnosis does. It threatens your life, right? It, especially in our society, the words you have cancer or you have stage four cancer, that really is a death sentence. And so it makes sense that your the survival instinct part of your brain sure. would then take over. So. That's so interesting, but it does make, it makes total sense. Yeah. I'm curious before we dive into some of the other ones, from your interviews and, and a time perspective, what were some of those commonalities as far as, you know, these survivors were given X amount of time and like how long did it take for them to implement, I guess, all of these changes? You know, was it like you have a month to live and then they were able to do all this in that month and, and change it? Or was it years out? Years. Yeah. And that's another reason why I've renamed the term from spontaneous remission to radical remission is because on average, radical remission survivors take a year and a half to get to a point where they are either stable or have no evidence of disease. And for some people, it's three years or more. Very rarely are you seeing anybody get to full remission in six months. Maybe they're stabilized in six months, but no, this, these are long haul permanent changes that they make in their life to lead a healthier, happier, more balanced life. So it takes a long time. It's not an instant fix, but it also, for them, at least it sets them up for life. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other big takeaway is so many of these factors and tips are things that we should all be doing. Absolutely. All these lifestyle changes that I think when we dive into it and like really hearing the scientific 
research behind it where someone might be like, well, meditation, I've heard that's a thing. But then when you really hear the, the science of it and how it's affecting your body, it's, it's clearly the benefits are huge for anybody. Absolutely. That was a wonderful thing for me to see. It's like they, these, these radical mission survivors aren't doing things that are unobtainable or really hard to do, or, you know, crazy out of left field. They're eating more vegetables. <laughs> they're exercising, they're finding happiness, they're releasing stress. So this isn't something that none of us can do. These are, th these are 10 things we can all do. And actually other researchers have studied these 10 factors independently of me and usually one at a time and almost all of them have been shown to prevent cancer right we have plenty of studies that's showing that eating a high fiber vegetable rich diet actually prevents cancer or cancer recurrence same thing with daily movement same thing with stress reduction you brought up meditation one of my favorite studies showed that people who had never meditated before and were taught to meditate for half an hour a day after only eight weeks they turned off their cancer genes, their oncogenes. Wow. Right. It's incredible. So it's incredible. Right. So we know that from other people's research that doing these 10 factors one at a time has been shown to be preventative for cancer. So imagine what happens when you do them all, all at the same time, right? Yeah. Like that's the immune, the immune explosion that we're seeing from these radical remission survivors. It's so pretty it's incredible. incredible. It's incredible. And I, I do love your second book being called Radical Hope because like it just does give you that hope of, you know, things changing in our world from a cancer or any kind of disease. Like we have the tools now and we know the facts. Yeah. Yeah. One of the radical Christian survivors featured in my second book, Radical Hope, is a woman named Di Foster. And, you know, I mentioned one of the common 10 factors was increasing positive emotions. Her story is just incredible. She was diagnosed at 31 with breast cancer. So diagnosed at a very young age, did all the surgery, all the chemo, all the radiation, everything her doctors told her. And she celebrated her five-year mark. She was like, I'm, I'm good. And then at the six-year mark, she started having some weird health symptoms and stuff. And so long story short, unfortunately, she was diagnosed with recurrent now stage four uh, breast cancer that had spread to her lungs. So now she's 38, stage four breast cancer. They've, they're telling her, the only thing we have to offer you is palliative chemo. So the chemo is not gonna cure you. It just might give you an extra couple months. And no matter what, we're giving you 12 months to live. So that's a pretty awful thing to experience yeah. as a 38 year old. And um, she had just sort of met the man of her dreams and they'd gotten married and were planning on having kids someday. So it was really devastating for her. She said, they said, do you want the palliative chemotherapy? And she said, no, I, you know, I did all that and it, it's very hard. And if it's just going to give me an extra month or two, I'd rather not go through the side effects. So she said, instead, you're telling me I've got 12 months, that's 365 days. Well, if I've only got 365 days left on this earth, I'm going to make sure they're all really amazing. And that was her goal. Her goal was, I've only got 365 days. Let me make them happy. Let me, or let me make them worthwhile. Right. And, you know, what was her, I have her quote from her. She said, what you focus on is where your energy goes. So that. she decided to focus not on the fact that she was going to die in a year, but that every day was going to be joyful. So anyway, a year rolls along and she's feeling pretty good. And then six months more go along and she's feeling pretty great. And her husband said, you know, I think you're well, you're starting to get annoying. You know, you're starting to really be a pain in the butt. And then she said, well, 
if we're going to have, a, if we're going to have kids, we should do it soon. Cause I'm almost 40. And without checking in with her doctors, they decided to try to get pregnant, knowing that, you know, God forbid, should the cancer take her, that he would be a single father. And, and they both were willing to accept that. Long story short, she has this baby. She doesn't even tell her doctors. Baby's healthy. She's healthy. At the three-year mark, three years after they said she was going to die, she goes in because she wants to test for her black belt into karate. Oh my and she God. just, she's like, before I get kicked all over in the chest and everything, let me just make sure my lungs are clear. No evidence of disease. That is incredible. Right. And it, it's, it's mind blowing. And I, I wish that story would happen for every cancer patient. Obviously it doesn't, but when you have thousands of these cases, right? No, there are millions and millions of cancer cases every year. So really this phenomenon is rare. It's important for your listeners to know this, but as researchers, we can't ignore it any longer. We need to start studying it because Di Foster and Shin Teriyama and Catherine Alexander and all the other people I've studied, they unlocked through these 10 factors, their own immunotherapy. They are, they're, I, I call it old school immunotherapy, right? So instead of taking a monoclonal antibody or some new immunotherapy clinical trial, by doing these 10 lifestyle factors, they are revving up their immune system in a way that at least for them was enough to turn around their cancer. And I wish it weren't so rare. And the only way it's not going to be rare is if we really take a hard, close look at these people. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. So let's dive into the positive emotions because I think that is really fascinating and one that we can all be applying in our life too. So what happens, you can go kind of into the science of like what happens in the body when we're positive and when we're not positive um, yeah. and tips to, to finding that positivity. Well, when we feel genuine emotions like happiness, joy, gratitude, love, we have a wonderful slew of healing hormones that get released from the pituitary and the pineal glands. So we have these incredible glands in the center of our brains that you think of them as master pharmacists. And if we create the right conditions, these master pharmacies in our brains will spew out healing hormones. And when I say healing hormones, I literally mean these hormones help your body heal, right? So we're talking about oxytocin, serotonin, relaxin, endorphins. Studies have shown that increased levels of oxytocin actually reduce breast cancer cells in your body through a process called autophagy. So these hormones that suddenly get spewed into your bloodstream are literally helping your body fight off cancer. And that's why finding a way to be happy or positive or joyful for at least five minutes a day is incredibly healing for your body. Now I say five minutes a day because there is a sort of a, a horrible guilty thing happening in the world of mind-body medicine, which tells people, if you don't feel positive all the time, you're helping your cancer grow or you're not going to get better. And that's a terrible consequence of this scientific fact, because it's impossible to feel happy all the time, especially when you're faced right. with terminal cancer, right? I mean, most of the radical remission survivors I study, especially in the first six months, spent about 12 of their waking hours in despair and maybe half an hour laughing at some crazy comedy because they needed to distract themselves from the despair. So for anyone listening, who's like thinking, oh, I've been feeding my cancer by not being happy. Take a deep breath, relax and realize you really just need five minutes a day of something to bring you into happiness, joy, love. 
And the reason why that's important is because it breaks the stress cortisol cycle, right? So when we're in stress or worry or fear, afraid of dying, for example, we are in the sympathetic nervous system. We are in the stress response. We are in the cortisol loops. And those things help us run from a tiger, but they don't repair cancer cells. And so what we just need to do is interrupt that and just stop that for at least five minutes a day and switch over to the rest and repair mode. So, you know, an incredible study showed that chemotherapy patients, cancer patients receiving chemotherapy, they took half the group and just let them get their chemo and sit with their worried thoughts. And they took the other half and they took them into a room and they showed them stand-up comedy. <sighs> and after four hours, the people who had watched stand-up comedy had increased number numbers of white blood cells and natural killer cells. These are really important cells to, to, to fight your cancer. So, you know, distract yourself with comedy, go watch some stand-up or, you know, go play with a three-year-old. They're hilarious. <laughs> Things like that can really help your cells you know, all the way down to the, the cellular level. And I think it's important for people to know that. I was rereading Radical Hope last week, two weeks ago, and yeah. reading that chapter about positive emotions. And I was like, I need more laughter in my life. So I watched Senior Year. If anyone has seen that on uh, Netflix, it it was a good laugh. It was, yeah, it, it <laughs> I was laughing out loud and was just like, this is so silly and stupid, but I'm laughing out loud. And like, I haven't felt that emotion in a while. And I, it's just so healthy for us to be doing that. It is. And, and if you look at little kids, they laugh like every day and somewhere along the lines of adolescence and adulthood, we kind of stop laughing or just feeling joy for the sake of joy. So, um, yeah, whatever, whatever it takes, whether it's stand-up comedy or a painting class or, you know, who knows, uh, whatever works for you, finding those five minutes of distraction from the fear can be very he healthy for your body. So on the opposite side of that, the other area of suppressed emotions that we talked about, and whether it be stress, trauma, let's dive into how that feeds into our body, um, how it feeds cancer, et cetera, and what, what we can do about it. Yeah. Well, you know, this is also another, another factor that I have to be very careful with because people can start to feel guilty about sure feeling stress. So I always like to remind people, we all have stress. We've all had traumas, some really big traumas, maybe some micro traumas, but we've all got stuff to release. Nobody's a pure vessel, at least no one that I've met. So from the radical mission survivor standpoint, um, so these are just normal cancer patients. These aren't scientists. These aren't doctors or healers. These are just the survivors. What they report is that finding ways to release any emotion that felt stuck in their mind or their body, right? Whether that's current day stress, like stress from their life today, or past stress, meaning usually past trauma, or anxiety or grief, sadness, right? Any of these emotions that are sort of weighing you down. They did things, lots of different things, to try to release these emotions from their being, really, from their mind and their body. And so this is things like, you know, journaling writing letters to people that you never send, maybe classic talk therapy, and also some more advanced therapies. Some, some people did these, not everyone, but things like EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing technique, or EFT, emotional freedom technique, also known as tapping, or IFS, internal family system. So if you're curious, you can Google all those, but that's just 
you know, a smattering of examples of, of what people did to try to release these suppressed emotions. Now, from an alternative medicine standpoint, what we're talking about here is the blockage of chi, the blockage of energy. And again, this is a theory from alternative medicine. You know, I, as, as a researcher, I have to say this hasn't been proven by Western scientists yet. However, they are starting to measure chi and, and be able to like capture chi with certain instruments. So, you know, I think in 50 years, conventional researchers will start to understand what Ayurvedic and Chinese medicine practitioners have been talking about for centuries. But this idea of chi, meaning your life force energy, in a healthy human body, that chi is moving. It's flowing, it's coming in, it's also leaving you, and there are no blocks, there are no roadblocks along the way. And from a Chinese medicine practitioner's perspective, or maybe Ayurvedic medical practitioner's perspective, cancer is a blockage, right? A tumor is a literal blockage of cells. It's a buildup of cells that's causing a blockage in the body. And so what that means is that the chi, the, the life force energy that's supposed to be flowing in, a, in that area can't flow. And obviously, you know, in conventional medicine, we use surgery to cut out that blockage. In alternative medicine therapies, they might use things like acupuncture or herbs or lifestyle changes or releasing trauma or releasing grief from the body. So, you know, there are certain acupuncture points connected to the lungs that are meant to release pent up grief in your body. The liver is connected to anger in Chinese medicine. So this idea of emotions being connected to your body and specifically to certain organs is something that's absolutely a part of Chinese medicine. And it's, it's something that we're just starting to sort of dip our toes into in conventional medicine. A good example, because I always like examples, is the gentleman Yokanan that I featured in my docu-series. This is a, a man in his 30s or 40s when he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, right? Multiple myeloma is a blood cancer that is very fatal. It's, you know, once you're diagnosed with it, you usually have, you know, less than a year to live. And certainly that was his case. By the time it was diagnosed, they gave him three months to live. And he, he actually tried chemotherapy for a few days just to see if he could give him a few more months, but his body actually couldn't take it. It was too strong. It, it made him too ill. So he was sent home basically on hospice care. And instead, he ended up traveling to Mexico to go to an alternative cancer clinic where he practiced all of the 10 healing factors. But for him specifically, one that was very important and very challenging was releasing suppressed emotions. Because this was a man who had grown up on the south side of Los Angeles in the 80s, surrounded by gang violence, surrounded by guns, by drugs, by police cars, by police brutality, right? He had so much trauma from his childhood. He also had a lot of patterns of abuse within his own family growing up. So he had a lot of trauma from the past to release. And he went into deep meditation. He had all these hours to spend down in Mexico while he was getting different vitamins dripped into him via IV and all that. So he had a lot of time on his hands and he decided, I really want to try to heal the, the hurt in my heart, you know, the, the trauma from my childhood. And he was able to do that. And he also did the other nine healing factors. And when I interviewed him, it was three years later, no evidence of disease. And now it's oh, five wow. years. Now it's five years later, right? So this is someone who was given three months to live. And here he is five years later, alive and well. It's pretty, That's it's pretty incredible. Are you, every time now that you've had so many of these interviews, do you still feel that same wow factor yes. when you hear it? Like it hasn't. 
Oh, it has not worn off. Yeah. No, because I know, I mean, look, I'm sort of in a bubble in that the people who have these radical remissions come to me. So, right. you know, it's cancer is a very positive thing for me and not positive, but I see a big bright side because right. healing is the hopeful to, side. And, yeah, yeah. Healing yeah. seems to be possible all the time. But I, I'm also reminded that cancer is, you know, our number two killer behind heart disease. So it, it never ceases to amaze me when I hear of these cases and it never ceases to disappoint me that their doctors didn't research them. Yeah. So, you know, I always want to remind people, yes, these cases are rare by copying these people and doing these 10 factors. We cannot guarantee that your cancer will go away. But if we just ignore them and don't study them at all, we're not going to learn a thing. So that's where I try to hold the balance of let's study these cases. Let's learn from them. And hopefully somewhere down the road, we can change the standard of care. There's nothing that says we can't bring these 10 factors right into, right alongside chemotherapy, right? There's plenty of oncologists right now who would say, yeah, eat more vegetables, reduce your stress, get your exercise in. These are all good things. So it, it's, it's happening. We're starting, we're starting to, to see the two worlds blending this, this, world of healthy lifestyle changes, such as eating ancient grain granola. (laughs) Um, See these healthy lifestyle changes coming in with the big strong medicine of conventional medicine, and they can work together. And that's a beautiful thing. Well, certainly your work and the more that it's getting out there in the world for people to know, because I'm sure so many people who are diagnosed, they've never heard of any of these options. And so your work is so important to to get, get the message out to patients, but then also how do you get it out to the doctor? So that part of it starts to change. Right. And I think about next one being radically changing diet. I think about, you know, my grandfather having cancer and we were feeding him like milkshakes in the hospital. And, you know, that was years ago where we didn't have knowledge of, or I didn't have knowledge of cancer feeding more easily in in an acidic state than an alkaline state. But just that basic knowledge, I feel like you just wish that more doctors were sharing that information. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's going to have to come, you know, doctors won't really change anything until the research shows it. And so it's going to have to come from enough patients like these radical remission survivors that I study making these changes and sort of making all of our jaws drop. And then when that happens enough and we collect enough of these cases, then we can get a clinical trial going, which is one of my goals. And then if we have enough clinical trials, then the doctors will say, oh, okay, I guess instead of a milkshake- instead of a milkshake, let's give you, you know, a, a vegetable fruit smoothie and let's put in some, you know, sun butter or something with, you know, or some avocado or some coconut to give you those calories, right? Like the reason oncologists or, or oncology hospitals might bring a milkshake to a cancer patient is because they're trying to keep their weight on. That's a great intention, but the method is, you know, we now realize 60 grams of sugar, not so much. (laughs) Yeah. It's a little flawed, right. But we can, we can, hopefully we can make a better milkshake. Yeah. Do you know anyone in like the food distribution business? Uh, Yeah. I don't know, Elizabeth, you know, (laughs) any ideas? So let's dive into a little bit about what you found on radically changing diet. And I I do love what you said of like, it it is individualized because I think that's always a great thing to be talking about when we talk about diet. So what did you find? Absolutely. It was individualized. It was kind of confusing at first because some people were on the paleo diet. Some people were on 
a macrobiotic diet, the Gerson diet, the fruit only diet, or the no fruit diet. Some people were eating healthy grains. Some people were eating no carbs at all. So it was very hard for me to see. I, I, I could tell that everybody was changing their diet, but it was hard to see any common threads. And then I finally had to just zoom way back. And I had to say, okay, on the whole, radical mission survivors seem to be reducing meat, wheat, sweets, and dairy. So maybe they're not eliminating it altogether, but they're reducing their meat intake, their wheat, meaning gluten intake, um, sweets, meaning refined sugars and dairy products. And what they're replacing those with are vegetables and fruit and water. So that's about as specific as I can report to you as to what radical mission survivors are eating, reducing meat, wheat, sweets, and dairy, and greatly increasing vegetables and fruits. And that's sort of where the similarities end, but that's okay because, you know, some people have a microbiome that can handle beans and that can handle digesting grains and other people the the status of their microbiome, at least at the moment, can't handle those things. So that's where it really helps to work with a qualified health professional, whether that's a doctor or a nutritionist or a dietitian, naturopath, whatever, whatever suits you, but working with a health professional to figure out what is your microbiome? like right now and what does it need because you know one of your questions that you had sent to me was how why is the microbiome important for cancer it's turning out to be everything right or or mostly everything because the microbiome is affected not only but by what we eat but how we feel right so if you're worried all the time your stomach is filled with acid right that's why we have ulcers because you have just acid, acid, acid from worry, worry, worry. And that, that allows an ulcer to form. We also know that the presence of certain H. pylori bacteria contributes to ulcers forming. So it's, it's not one or the other, but what we eat and how we think and feel absolutely impacts our microbiome. And there's this one study that their conclusion was that 70% of the immune system resides in the gut right? We have trillions of organisms living in, you know, what is it? 18 feet of intestines. So trillions of organisms making up 70% of our immune response. That's something to pay attention to, right? Yeah. So what we eat is something you should pay attention to. Absolutely. I just heard the statistic and I'm going to botch it, but it was something like if you took every star in the galaxy multiplied by two is like how many cells we have in our gut. I mean, it was something so hard to wrap your head around what yeah. is residing inside of us and how that's like the control center of, of it all. And yeah. just more research coming out, it feels like every day about the importance of the gut microbiome. Right. Well, when you think about it, it's where the outside meets the inside, right? This is where your outside world meets the inside of your body, right? Underneath your skin, right? This is where food comes in from the outside and goes into your body. So this is our barrier, right? The, the intestines have incredible abilities to protect ourselves from pathogens, from germs, right? When we all know this from getting a stomach flu, right? If you eat something bad, you're not thinking, like you don't think to yourself, I've just eaten something bad. I know that. So I'm gonna go throw it, I'm gonna go throw it up right now. No, your gut knows. Right before you even know, your gut's yeah. like, oh, something bad just came in from the outside world. Eject. Let's get it out. Right. Whether it comes, you know, up through vomiting or the other end, your body is has incredible innate 
knowing of what to do for something severe like that. But when it comes to constant refined sugars and constant high glycemic foods or highly acidic foods, your body's not going to make you go throw up or, you know, it's not going to eject that stuff. But after a while, the lining of your intestines are going to thicken up with, you know, mucus and all, you know, it's things are going to start to break down is what I'm saying. And if we can avoid that, then we'll be healthier. Absolutely. So do you have any great advice that you can share? We just talked about that, you know, most doctors aren't necessarily talking about these tips. So what advice can you share if you have a loved one who has been diagnosed with cancer to help support them on making these lifestyle changes? Because certainly it's not easy for some of us. Yeah. Well, I always like to say I'm not here to give advice because I'm not a medical doctor. I'm just a PhD researcher. So I just look at radical remission survivors and I'm the messenger reporting what they're doing. So I don't give medical advice, but if I had a friend or family member who were diagnosed with cancer, what would I, as their friend, family member say to them, I would just be really gentle. I would give them suggestions, not directly, but maybe like through a book or through a docu-series, like just something like, hey, maybe you want to check this out, right? And all my, my books are at the library. So you can, you know, you can go check it out for them and tell them it's due in two weeks or whatever. But just be really gentle because, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So I I always just tell people, well, you know, check out everything I could tell you that I've learned from radical mission survivors is in my book. So go, if, go read it. And if you want to talk to me about it, I'm here. So I think being gentle with your loved ones is the most important thing. And I would say the second thing is to lead by example. It's when someone's facing something as scary as a cancer diagnosis, and then they have someone they love very much coming to them and saying, oh, I heard you need to change your diet and you need to do this and this and this. It feels overwhelming. And these also might be changes they're not looking forward to, right? Cannolis might be their favorite thing on the earth. The cannolis might bring them so much joy. And now you're saying you can't eat the cannoli. So I think what what is more helpful to friends and family is to just lead by example. You start making the green juices. You start eating the purely Elizabeth granola and just tell them how it's making you feel. You know, I think people take advice a lot better when it's not advice, but rather just a sharing of someone's lived experience. Absolutely. So what's next for you on this journey as you continue research and you were starting to talk about clinical work studies that you're hoping to do? Yeah, Um, I'm excited. I've sort of embraced the fact that I have uh, very active left and right brains. It's taken me a couple decades here to just embrace that that's who I am. But the more science-minded part of me wants to continue the research. So we we've tried to make it really easy for radical remission survivors to tell us about their case. So at radicalremission.com, they can just share their, their healing story with us in 10 minutes or less. So that continues to be a wonderful source of collecting data. And I was lucky enough to have researchers from my alma mater, Harvard, approach me and say, we'd love to do a pilot study on these, these healing factors. And I said, fantastic. (laughs) So that's been going on for the past two years, that pilot study and they're in the data analysis phase, and hopefully they will be publishing the results, you know, within the next year. So that. So what is does a, that study look like? That study, you know, pilot studies don't have very much money attached to them. And so they need to be quite simple. And I was already offering a weekend workshop. Um, well, not me, but the 
some teachers that I've trained offering a weekend workshop on how to bring these 10 healing factors into your own life if you want, if you want to just make your immune system as healthy as it can be. And so the researchers from Harvard said, well, why don't we take the people who've done your workshop? So they've been taught how to do the 10 factors. And let's see from before the workshop begins to six months later, if they have any benefit in their eating habits and in their emotional well-being. So it's a very simple study right now. We're just looking at before and after people who've taken the workshop, do their eating habits improve and does their emotional well-being improve? Once we have those results, we'll be able to apply for grants for a clinical trial. And that would look something like this, where you take stage one or stage two cancer patients and half of them just get the standard of care and half of them get standard of care plus guidance in implementing these 10 healing factors. And then you compare the groups and you say, well, how do the people who just got standard of care do versus the people who got standard of care plus these 10 healing factors? And in that clinical trial, we would want to look at really physical markers of health, right? So telomere length and natural killers, killer cell activity, really, you know, tumor size, that sort of thing. That's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah. So when would that take place? Oh, well, once you give me $4 million, Elizabeth. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Perfect. It's coming to you. We'll manifest it. All right. Yes. Wire that tomorrow. That'd be great. Um, So that's the science side of things. And then, you know, the other part of my brain is just very creative and has always been moved by incredible true stories. So the docuseries about the radical mission survivors I've studied is going to be coming out this fall. We had a, we had a, thank you. I'm excited. We had a test screening of it, March, 2020. And we were hoping that, you know, a couple hundred, maybe even a thousand people would watch this online test screening. We had 125,000 people watch it. <laughs> and it's because it launched on, it launched March March 16th. And the you know, the US right. shut down March 15th. So everyone just had nothing to do but wow. watch 10 hours of TV. <laughs> so we had a really positive um, test screening and that'll come out this fall. So I'm really excited. And then um, I have a couple other where, where can people find that docuseries when it comes out? That's gonna be on my uh, the publisher's website for my second book, hayhouse.com. And then I just have some other screenplays that are in the works, one about a radical mission, and then some other screenplays about other incredible true stories. So. So exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. So from your research of the 10 factors, what would you say that you, if any, have you taken personally to, to be a lifestyle change that you've really felt has made a difference in your life? Well, I mean, I try to do all 10 as much as I can, but the one that's had the biggest impact on me because I really wasn't doing it before was a spiritual connection practice. So I was not meditating before this research um, or praying or, 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 you know, whatever spiritual connection practice works for you. And after this research, I started meditating daily and that just has changed everything. For the, you, for the for the better. <laughs> do you do any specific meditation or what's that look like for you? For me, that looks like I usually listen to a guided meditation for about 10 minutes. There's plenty of guided meditations out there. You can find one that works for you. And then on my phone playlist, I have it go right into like spa yoga music without any words. And I, I try to do 20 minutes of just a, a, a blank, silent mind and just focusing on my breathing with along to the music that has no words, nice. but that's, that's been sort of my practice now for a, a while. And it's when I fall off the wagon and don't do it, I notice the detrimental effects. So 
That's great. All right, so we're going to move on to some rapid fire Q&A to close out our session. Okay, I'm ready. The best advice that you've gotten in the past six months. Best advice I've gotten in the last six months. To repeat the phrase regularly, everything is always working out for me. A favorite book, podcast, or mentor that you have for growth? For health stuff, I love Chris Carr. She's, you know, one of the original radical mission survivors yeah. that the world knew about. And for me personally, because I'm a creative person, I love Liz Gilbert and her book, Big Magic, and anything she has to say about being a creative. Three things that you're currently loving. Uh, purely Elizabeth Granola. <laughs> Uh, no, for real, for real. Um, I've started, I added it to our weekly grocery list when you asked me to be on this podcast. I'd had it before, but it hadn't been one of our staples and it's now one of my staples. Oh, I, thank you. I really like it. Are you going to, is it, it's a secret recipe, right? It is a secret recipe. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so the, the granola is, the granola is pretty amazing. Um, I love the show. This is us. It just ended. So I'm, I'm sad, but that was a wonderful, I thought a wonderful show that yeah. helped me release suppressed emotions and feel joy. And the other thing that's, you know, I'm loving right now is my garden. I live on the East Coast, so we have six months of, you know, winter and things not being green. And so June is amazing. I'm looking out at like, you know, 20 different flowers right now. Oh, it makes me so beautiful. happy. Yeah. Favorite wellness hack? going for a walk. I, it just solves everything for me, whether I'm having a mentally tough day or a physically sluggish day. If I just get outside and go for a 15 minute walk, everything changes. Words to live by favorite words to live by. Um, there's a, there's a quote and I'm, I'm going to botch it a bit, but it goes something like it's better to face the fear of failure than never go for your dreams. And that's one that sticks with me a lot. I love that one too. And I work, I work with cancer patients who are facing death. And when they're given six months to live, a lot of them finally go for the thing they've always wanted to do, but felt too foolish to do. And that's really inspired me. It's like, don't wait for a cancer diagnosis. Like go for it now, feel foolish now. Who cares yeah. if you feel foolish, just do it. I love that. I feel happiest when? I feel happiest when I am creating something that is inspiring to me and others. And lastly, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? That's easy, sleep, <laughs> sleep. <laughs> As a mother of two young kids who are now, have been sleeping through the night, you know, they're six and eight now. I was like non-functional when they were younger. My brain didn't work. My body didn't work. Sleep is everything. If I don't get sleep, I don't function. Agreed. <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Lastly, you, where can everybody find you on social, et cetera? Um, if you want to follow my radical remission work, it's radicalremission.com and you know, at radical remission on Instagram, that sort of thing. And then me personally, because I'm not only about uh, cancer research, uh, you can find me on Instagram, Kelly Turner, I think underscore one, something like that. Perfect. Thank you, Kelly. This was so wonderful. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. It was wonderful too. 
Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.